0: Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our
1: industry. Hey, y'all, it's Bridget here. Julie and I had the pleasure of chatting with Master Sommelier Matt Cetrillia. Matt has over 40 years of experience in hospitality and beverage industry, which began with stocking beer and wine at his father's beverage store. His broad-based skills include experience in retail, restaurant, and wholesale. As a young retailer, he created a series of innovative tastings, dinners, and education events that inspired consumers to try new and varied selections of beverages. He ventured into restaurants that provided him with expertise in service and beverage management. Matt has a great passion for the hospitality profession. He has earned numerous post-nominal initials from prestigious organizations such as Wine and Spirits Education Trust, Court of Master Sommeliers, Wine Scholars Guild, the Saki Professional Program, and so many more, folks. Matthew is currently the Director of Education for Southern Glaciers Wine and Spirits, and he educates all about wine. So sit back, relax. Enjoy Matt's important industry story and enjoy the show.
0: Thank you for joining us on Served Up.
1: Welcome.
2: Uh, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure. It's an honor to be uh, here uh, with uh, you and uh, Bridget. Thank you very much.
1: We are so excited to have you here. And, you know, I think our listeners would really love to know what brought you to the beverage
2: industry? Uh, well, like most people in the beverage industry, it wasn't uh, my first choice. In fact, I didn't even realize you could make a career in the beverage industry. You know, I, I actually, you know, I grew up in a, um, a small Midwest uh, town, the oldest of eight kids. And uh, we lived in a small house, three bedroom, one bath house with 10 people in it, right? And my dad worked uh, two jobs most of his life. And that's kind of what I thought my life was going to be like. Because uh, that was how small everything was, and um, I started working with him around when I was like 13 years old, and he had a little gas station beverage store that he was a managing partner of. That's kind of where I got my first taste of of a fine wine and uh, you know and, you know craft beer, although I didn't really understand what fine wine and craft beer was at 13, 14 years old. Um, the the I, I will say the very first book I ever read that was not mandated by a teacher was. Uh, I was 17 years old and I read Alex Lachine's uh, Guide to the Vineyards of France from uh, cover to cover. And w- not only was I fascinated about this whole culture and country that I didn't really even understand existed outside of, uh, you know, mentor, but I found all of these wines that were in the book on my dad's shelves, right? And um, suddenly when the salespeople came in to talk to him, I, I had a different perspective of what they were talking about, Right. But still, I went to school for electrical engineering because that's, you know, that's a job, right? Uh, the wine industry was not not a job. It was, uh, you know, something you did. And while I was going to uh, college, you know, as you're coming towards the end, you start interviewing. And I realized that that as an engineer, I was going to be spending nine to five in a small little cubicle under fluorescent lights. And I just realized that's not this is not what I want to do. Right. And uh, unfortunately, at the same time, my dad got sick with cancer. Um, he ended up passing away shortly after, but during that time, I was running the the gas station and the beverage store. And it was during that time a buddy of mine. Uh, he and I went out. We got drunk one night and decided, you know what, we're going to buy the beverage store off of my uh, my father's managing partner and open up a full fledged wine and gourmet food shop. You know, at uh, the white old age of twenty two, like we knew what the hell we were doing, and that's kind of what brought me into the whole thing, right? Because I just didn't want to be an engineer, and I, you know, did that for about four years. My partner and I learned a tremendous amount about business. I mean, I got more business skills out of those four years than than anything else. More than I would have ever gotten out of college. Um, we learned a lot about undercapitalization, expansive growth, and all that kind of stuff. And then um, we ended up selling the place, and I just stayed in the business after that. Um, I figured, uh, you know, I'll continue to do this until I can find a real job.
1: That's amazing. I do want to ask you what. Where is your hometown?
2: Um, I was born and raised in Mentor, Ohio, just outside of Cleveland. So good Midwest town.
0: That's great. I love that it was a gas station and a wine shop because
2: I feel like those are
0: some of the best places
2: to find <laughs> <some>
0: gems, right?
2: <laughs> in the old days, yes. Uh, you, know, but you, you know, certainly uh, you do have in, the, in Ohio temperature issues in the middle of summer that uh, could actually cause some problems with, you know, quality wine. But in any event, no, it was, uh, it was a great way to start.
0: Yeah. I think we deal with that in Florida. So, you yeah. know, <laughs> a lot of that. So that is just um, fascinating. So you learned a lot about kind of fine wine and and the different world, international types of wines from your father. And and it's interesting you say French because I know your heritage is Italian. Did he like Italian wine too?
2: Well, no, you got to remember this is back in the eighties. And so uh, he had, it, you know, Italian wine there and German wine, but the amount of Italian and German and Spanish wine available back in the uh, in the early '80s, late '70s, there wasn't a whole heck of a lot of it, really, all that available. Um, but what he did have from Italy was absolutely top notch, right? So, like now, uh, I'll mention a, a brand called Le Pergola Torte, which is very expensive, prestige uh, Italian wine, right? That nobody knew what it was in the 1980s, and I drank. That was one of the first Italian wines I drank, and it was twelve dollars a bottle, right? Um, now Le La Bercola Torte is, you know, one of the most sought after super Tuscans that are out there along with, uh, Tignanello and Salai and many of the other ones. Right. So, um, he had everything, but French was what was the majority of the store. I and mean, it was only 400 square feet. So it wasn't that big. And, you know, that's also the, the doctors and the, and the, uh, the attorneys that came in to have uh, their gas pump, cause we were full service gas station. They didn't want to get their hands dirty. So I pumped the gas, fill up their car drive their Mercedes off to the side and then come in and then they buy a case of wine and I'd run their case of wine out to them. That's kind of how the whole thing ran.
0: Wow. That's fascinating. And so when you guys took over the shop, did you give up the gas station and oh, yeah. you just the, do the, the shop? Yeah, okay. the,
2: the gas station, there was no, there's no money in the gas station business. I mean, that's why so many gas stations have soda pop and snacks and all that other kind that's where they make their money because the amount of money you're making on gas uh, at the store level is very small. You're talking about pennies a gallon, right? So you got to pump a lot of gases to uh, a lot of gallons in order to make uh, any kind of money. And I'm like, no, this is there's there's no way I was going to do that. Yeah. yeah, it was dirty and smelly. And right. And when you especially when you start getting a taste for, you know, fine wine and, and food, it's like, I don't want to be around the gas. I just I just want to eat and drink.
0: Yeah. How do you smell wine and smell gas yeah, and smell? smell wine? <laughs> they could Mess it up.
2: Yeah. Everything smells like petrol. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, and there is a wine that's known to smell like petrol. Yeah, right? German
2: Riesling. <laughs> yeah. German Riesling in particular. Yes.
0: You know, so I think you definitely had the advantage learning a lot about kind of fine wine just through, you know, exposure to that with your father growing up. I, I want to jump back because you said you were one of eight siblings.
2: Yeah, I was the oldest of eight, yes.
0: Oh my goodness! And and do any of did any of them um, help at the shop or did they all kind of go out and do different things? I can't imagine being in a family. Yeah,
2: I mean, my 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 brother that was just younger than me, Mark, uh, he worked with me a little bit at the at this uh, as well. Um, but I spent the most amount of time there. The, the other my other siblings were just much too young. I mean, I was my dad died when I was t- oh, just turning twenty two years old. So many of them. I mean, my youngest brother, I think, was. 11. Oh, my God. no, no, he was maybe nine. I think he was nine years old at the time, right? So he was the most of them were, were quite young. Yeah.
0: Um, and when did you start getting into more formal education of
2: wine? What was I, that journey like for you? When uh, I got into that, when I got bored, because I realized you, there was nothing left. To, you know, you get to a point where you're not being challenged by the sales consultants anymore. You're not being challenged. You know, you, you read the Wine Spectator and uh, decanter at the time. And you realize that there's there's something more, but I need something to challenge myself. So the very first thing that I did was uh, American Wine Society, which is more of a Midwest organization I Had a wine judge training program that I went through um, when I was 21, 22, 23 years old. So I went through that whole thing. And I, that's when I began to discover, like, I need something to continue to challenge me. I need something outside of my small little bubble, my small little world of Mentor Ohio. Um, and I think that's one of the great things that the that the wine industry did for me is that at a young age, uh, so many people that live in small towns, we, we're we born, we live, we die within, you know, 25 miles of where we were actually raised, right? And we lose perspective, we become very provincial, and we lose perspective of the world. And getting involved at wine, I, I think one of the greatest things it did was it give, gave me this world perspective and this desire to want to learn more about about cultures from all over the world, right? Um, and how different all the cultures were and how their food came to be and the wine came to be. I mean, uh, in the United States, we're such a young country. Our heritage of of food isn't quite the same as some place that has been cultivating and creating something for thousands of years, right? And so there's there's a whole story behind not just why wine tastes the way it does but how it be how it came to taste the way it actually does right uh, what other grapes were planted in that area before they actually planted the grape that's actually there cuz we think of bordeaux as always you know as cabernet sauvignon but mm-hmm. cabernet sauvignon was only you know first planted in the 1700s prior to that there were many many other grapes that were actually planted in that area and but cabernet was the one that had ended up doing the best and that's where it, you know, made its home. So, you know, there's, there's all of the stuff behind the scenes that we look at, this is the way it's always been. But then when you really get into it, it's like, no, that's not the way it's always been. And um, that's not the way the wines always used to taste either. There's been, there's this evolution that, that, uh, the that a, a grape and a region goes through for that style to eventually develop into what it actually is. And it's all of that, that adds up, that creates, the wine's identity, you know, like, so you see master sommeliers and other, uh, you know, kind of or whatever people that they're, they're really into wine. you know, we can smell and taste a wine and it's like, oh, that's, uh, oh, that's Riesling. Well, that's not just Riesling, that's Riesling from Germany. That's not just Riesling from Germany, that's Riesling from the Mosul area of Germany, specifically Valen de Sonnenau, right? Well, the only reason we can do that is because we understand all of the background that goes into it, that shaped and created and crafted the wine into what it is today that created its unique, definitive identity. Wine almost
1: needs like its own like history museum.
2: Uh, Yeah. <laughs>
1: you know what I'm saying? Because it's complicated, man. It is. It's complicated. You know, you hear all the time from people like Doug Frost, it's just grape juice, like get over it, you know, whatever. But it has like such a rich, cool history that really could be studied in, you know, a college academic setting for sure. Right. And I love that. So I would love to understand then, like once you really, you know, piqued your interest to learn more, I myself am from a small town in the Midwest. I heard you say pop, I almost fell over in my chair. (laughs) That's what I got into, brother. Yeah. So, you know, so then tell us, you know, then what really brought you into really that that court of Master Salmonier to take all those exams, to take you maybe to that next level of learning? Uh,
2: Curiosity. The the never-ending desire to answer the word why. Why is this like this? Why does this taste like this? Why does this cost this much? Why is this bottle of wine $12 a bottle and this other wine $75 a bottle? What makes that difference? And then From the standpoint of being somebody in hospitality and sales, how do I communicate that now to the person that comes into my store, into my restaurant that doesn't have time to listen to an hour dissertation of why this product or beverage actually tastes the way it does, right? So, Bridget, you made the the comment about wine being simple. Wine actually is incredibly simple. It is a grape and a growing region, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I tell this to everybody that's studying wine when you begin to get overwhelmed, because it can become overwhelming, break it down to its base components. What is the grape and where was it grown? And that's where you actually start. And then you can begin to build all of the additional information on top of it, which will then begin to help you understand why the wine actually tastes the way it does. But for most consumers, they don't really need to know all of this information. Really, all they need to know is this is the grape. This is where it was grown. And do I like it or don't I like it? Beyond that, the consumer doesn't need to know anything more than than what their curiosity may uh, ask of them. For somebody that's in the business like I am, it is the curiosity that helps drive sales. It is the curiosity that makes uh, me more capable of climbing into a customer's mind, into their mouth to understand what it is that they will like and what it is that they won't like. Okay, and I think this is one thing that kind of that's one of the reasons I was attracted to the Master Sommelier program was there were too many wine critics. There's everybody wants to be a tastemaker. Everybody wants to be a wine critic. That's not what I do. I don't critique wines from the standpoint of putting a, rating them on on a scale. My role is to learn what the customer is going to like and direct them to wines that they will like. Okay. Critics just say, this is good wine and you should like it because I said so. I, I don't subscribe to that philosophy because there's too many different wine styles out there. And that, that, this is where hospitality comes into play, where you learn about who your guest is and how to bring joy into their lives by presenting them products that are, that are going to appeal to their sense of taste, not my sense of taste. It doesn't matter whether I like it or don't like it at all. I sell wine all the time that I don't like, personally don't like, but I recognize the quality. And why do I recognize the quality? Because I was curious. I wanted to know why does the grape taste like that? What made the grape taste like that? And how was it shaped and sculpted by the region it was grown in and by the winemaking processes in that area? If that makes sense,
1: it makes absolute sense because I think that wine is a category that can be absolutely intimidating to so many, to myself included. Look, I. I'm in the spirits gig, right? I've been with, uh, you know, a spirit distributor for 18 years for, you know, a very long time. But even for myself, when I walk into a retailer, I'm like, holy shit, where do I start? I want everything in the basket. Look at those cool labels, you know, (laughs) Um, that's a twist cap that makes it so much easier for me on a Saturday night, you know, with with my friends at home. So I love your explanation of really making it simplified, you know, kind of knowing Um, the grape in the region and just trusting your palate it sounds like and going after what you love and that's what you should do and i i appreciate that answer matt because i am actually a new wine drinker as of about the last three years i didn't drink wine at all i drank beer and spirits so this is good information thank you
2: yeah 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 and I think the question originally was, you know, what drives me in this industry and it's it's kind of that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of trying to help other people learn what it is that they're going to like.
0: And and it's it is it is a wonderful industry when you are curious, right? I mean, to learn about wine whether you're a collector or somebody in the business, um there's always something to learn. And I know we've heard that from Eric Kemer is like triple yeah. master. He's like every time I yeah, open yeah. a book or taste or you know, I'm I'm learning, I'm learning, you can never stop learning. So when you discovered, how did you discover the quartermasters? What made you decide to follow that program? Because we all know it's kind of like a a life dedication. And what was that like for you for somebody that doesn't understand, you know, the different organizations that are out there and and the commitment level and and the different stages that you have to go to get to where where you are.
2: Yeah. So when I was, I guess, 25, 26 is when I was introduced to the court of master sommeliers by my good friend, Larry O'Brien. Right. And at the time I was actually getting super bored in the industry because I didn't, there was nothing left that seemed to challenge me. Right. Um, I was running out of places and people to actually challenge me. And again, part of it was living in such a small town. There was only so much that could be done. Larry introduced me to the Court of Master sommeliers. I sat in my first advanced exam in uh, 1994 and I was blown away. When I walked into the room, suddenly I wasn't the only geek around. Suddenly I'm like, oh my God, I'm talking to people that, like, what are they talking about? I have no idea of that grape or that place, right? What is that food that they're talking about? Their depth of knowledge of the world of wine and food. Was so far beyond anything that I had experienced, and I was actually I was able to have conversations with people at the level that I wanted to have a conversation at. Right, and um, and then it really it hyper exposed me to what hospitality was because all of this uh, you know the whole organization was focused around not just knowing a lot about wine, beer, spirits, uh, and cigars at the time, but how you present them, sell them, uh, you know. T- table side right, so the, the the in in my mind the key aspect has always been sales. My dad taught me this at a very very young age uh when I was really excited once he I sold a bottle of Lafitte Rothschild and uh you know showed him that I sold a bottle and he goes that's it's it's great that we uh, you know depleted a bottle of Lafitte Rothschild, but I want to ask you a question did the gentleman come in? And pick up the bottle, and we sold it, or did you put the bottle of wine in his hand and explain to him why he should buy it? I said, "Well, I guess he came in and and purchased it." He goes, "Great! Now you understand the rule of depletions. We need to deplete everything in our store." But sales is where you put something in someone's hand that they didn't intend to buy, and they walk out of the store with it, right? And so, with the court of master sommeliers, this is what I realized: they're they're taking. Both sides. Right. And to me, what the most important side, which was the business sales side, and you're applying all of this and um, in, in, in real life. Right. And I met people that were work the floor and just applied all of this stuff on, on a regular basis. And, and so that's what really hooked me into this was the hospitality side uh, and the, the hospitality sale side of everything. And they still think that's what makes that organization different than the others is because of the hospitality sales side.
1: Yeah, I mean absolutely. You know, throughout your career, can you talk about, you know, have you ever bartended? Were you ever a server, you know, beyond, you know, with the mom and pop like before you worked for Southern, like what were some of those things that brought you to where you are today?
2: So, yeah, I mean, I worked uh besides retail, I worked uh in restaurants and a variety of restaurants. Um in Ohio there's not a lot of what you call uh at the time especially a super uh you know high level fine dining but there was a lot of high level upscale casual dining right so most of my experience was upscale casual uh dining where you're selling expensive wine but it's done really fast there's no tray service you put glasses in your hand you walk to the table slap it down and and you move on to the next table right um and worked for some great restaurant tours up in Cleveland, really learned the front of the house. Um, and then when I moved down to Columbus and got, in a, you know, got into wholesale, moved down to Columbus, I still worked for a, a, a restaurant down there called The Refectory, which uh, that's where I got a lot of experience with fine dining and all of the intricacies and the details of dining, right? Um, and then the other thing, because my service skills were so bad, I mean, they're just so bad coming from Ohio that um, I spent a lot of time stodging around the country. So I would go into restaurants, uh, you know, as a uh, you know, working as a SOM, uh, stodging, supporting the uh, supporting the floor staff and just got to know fine dining and service from stodging at, at great restaurants all all across the country. Right. So that, that's kind of how I honed in uh, the the service skills and applying them um at at a much higher level that was necessary to pass the uh CMS examination.
0: And that is the actual certified examination, right? So could you explain to us the levels of certification because there's and I don't know if it's changed over the years, but I believe from what I understand and what I've gone through there's the intro which is theory, there's certified which yep. includes some service because I took that and that was probably the hardest part. Um, even though it was just opening a bottle of champagne and walking up to a table of people that know wine and everything um, way more than you. And then advance. So can you give us a high level of each of those? um,
2: Yeah, so you're, you're exactly right. The intro is the basically the name means the introduction into the court of master sommeliers, which is an examination body. We're really not an education body. We educate based on our charter. We educate Uh, from the standpoint of helping people understand what they need to know to kind of pass the examination, which is kind of like everything. So that's what the intro is. It gives them the introduction into what the organization is, our tasting uh, uh, methodology. Certified is a little bit harder theory-wise, not much harder theory-wise, but then that's the first uh, uh, understanding of the service aspect of it and the tasting aspect of it, right? And then the advanced is a massive step above that um, where... The advanced uh, is basically prepping you for the master's exam, and then the master um, the master's exam is ex- exactly like the the advanced, only much harder, right? And there's three parts to the advanced and to the masters, and that's tasting, service, and theory. And at the masters, everything is done orally, so there's no written theory paper. You just like you were in a, in a fine dining establishment or any establishment, right? If you're a server and a customer asks you a question. You should be able to answer the question right there on the spot. You should be able to distill the not only answer the question, but distill what you know about the answer into words that the customer is going to be able to understand. Right. So, putting people on the spot—that's uh, why we do the theory exam orally at the master's level. It's to force them to think through all of the information they have and be able to answer the question on the spot. Not say, um, "Let me get back to you on that," because that you know customers don't have time for that. We need to be able to provide them with answers right then and there. Yeah. You can't just say, let me Google it. Let me Google (laughs) it. Yes. Yes. Which in today's world you can, but you you, you can get the answer much quicker than you would be able to, but still, that's not. uh, Well, in
0: today's world, everybody's rushing to see who can find the Google answer the quickest, right? (laughs) Have tastings where customers do that and whatnot. So just to clarify, so you know, one thing I learned is when you take the intro, I think you explained it good. It's just an introduction to everything that you need to learn, which is a lot. And then you can't officially call yourself a sommelier unless you pass the certified.
2: No, actually anybody can call themselves a sommelier. That's the word okay. sommelier Not with quartermaster som, Right. Yeah. The the word sommelier anybody can and everybody does in today's world uh call themselves some. In fact. I almost don't want to use the word SOM anymore because it's so overused um, Mm -hmm. and abused, but anybody can call themselves a SOM. But if you are a certified sommelier, that means you have passed the certification at the court of master sommeliers, the uh, introductory, we don't certify anything because it's just a theory exam. It's like, here's your base level. This is, this is where you need to be to start. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, If you don't pass the intro level, uh really, it's just a matter of you don't have the foundation necessary to move on. If you pass the intro level, all right, you got the foundation. Now, let's see if you got the foundation of tasting and uh, service, all right, at the certified. Now that you pass the certified, you know what the foundation is. You know where the ground floor is. Now you build, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things we did. Um, you know I served on the board for uh, thirteen years, and I think that 's what we really did very, very well at the intro on the certified is creating that foundation of what it is that you need to begin to build upon um, The problem really becomes at the advanced and masters there 's so much there it 's not always very clear how to uh, how to clarify what you need to know at the advanced and the masters because it 's like it 's so massive, and um, myself and a handful of other masters at one time tried to codify it and we wrote a book trying to codify advanced versus masters, and it's, it's, it's a massive amount of information to try to uh, absorb and then try to deliver to people, right? I mean, you just wrote a book of what you need to know. So read this book of what you need to know. Now go out and learn it. <laughs> it's, uh, so it's always been the problem at the advanced and the masters is, is trying to figure out how to clarify and uh, let people understand what it is they should be studying and memorizing, which is basically everything and anything a customer might ask you on the floor.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the court of master sommeliers is, is no stranger to controversy, you know, as well, and, and has yeah. gone through a lot of ickiness mm-hmm. and is really trying to unstick, let's say, um, from some problematic situations that happen. And so we'd love to know, you know, what is the culture of the court of master Salmonies? What was it? What did you experience? And what is it today?
2: Um the Court of Master Sommeliers has always been the most inclusive organization I have ever been a part of. It's an incredibly difficult exam. It is not, it's not something that anybody should just do, Okay, um, but anybody that wanted to was always accepted with open arms. Uh, myself, I spent thousands of hours mentoring people. Um, I never realized uh, how many people I mentored until the latest um, issue with, uh, you know, sexual harassment in the organization where I was actually accused, one of the things I had to do, the the, the, the my attorney wanted me to go through and uh, look at how, how, you know, the people that I've mentored. I'm like, I have no idea who I've mentored. But I started going back through all of my records. And between uh, 2010 and 2019, I mentored nearly 500 different candidates from North and South America, and 50% of them were women. Um, nearly 50% of them were women, right? and so the this this claim um that has come up that we're an old boys club and that uh, you know there's the image and then there's the reality okay and myself being on the board for many many years we knew what the image was and trying to change that image was always very difficult because you don't want to you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater right so we were always tweaking and understanding that any change that we make is going to take a long time to filter through because it takes on average 10 to 15 years for someone to get through all four levels. And so we may have, and we did, we started, you know, um, outreach into minority organizations, but we understood that the decisions we're making now, we're not going to really see the results of these, you know, for eight, 10, 15 years down the road. And we're seeing the results now um, of the decisions that were made. Uh, When I was on the board and many others were on the board, we just had the most diverse class ever in uh, uh, this past year in 2022. And all of those people started studying long, long before most of this stuff happened. Right? So the organization has always been uh, an incredibly inclusive. Were there there bad actors? There's bad actors in every organization. Um, There were people that we were that we were punishing, or I don't know if the word punishes right, but we we, we were taking action against at the quartermaster somaliers, but then there were other organizations out there like Guildsom and Tech Som that were not that we don't run. They are their own organizations. And even though we took action against certain masters for their actions, these other organizations, because they desired those names to be at their events. Did not um, because it was all about social media clicks, and this is where I think. Um, although there's been a lot of change, I think the organization is so hyper focused on uh, rock star avatars that they've lost sight of the the true vision of what the Court of Master Somaliers is, and that is hospitality. We have been and always have been, you know, open to anybody and anyone that wanted to to, to start the journey. And the the other the other myth that we were having a problem dispelling especially with the uh, movie uh, uh, Psalm when it came out, was this idea that if you become a master sommelier, you're instantly going to be paid millions of dollars and you're going to have all this fame and all this. None of it's true. It never was true, right? And I think this is what makes the, the original masters like myself different from the current people going through the program. We went through the program. It was like climbing Mount Everest we just wanted to do it. There was nothing on the other side for us. Today, everybody seems to think there's something on the other side for you. And there there isn't anything on the other side for you. If you're not doing it for yourself, then don't go through the program. Um, uh, Because the program is about servitude. It's about servicing other people, making other people happy. And that has really been lost. And even with all the changes that have been made at the court, they have not brought any of that back. It is still hyper-focused on uh social media and creating rock star avatars, which I have no desire to be a rock star avatar don't don't want to be a, a celebrity psalm it's not about bringing attention to me it's about bringing attention to my guests that's that's what we do you know I yeah think
0: that, no and and i i I think that that really does because when you have an organization that becomes so prestigious, right? Yeah. I mean, to get to each level requires so much work. Um, and, and we know that it also requires a lot of mentoring. I mean, I know even when I went to get my certified, I went to, you know, a couple, um, of our colleagues that are certified Psalms, like, uh, actually Cynthia Betancourt. And I'm like, yeah. I'm getting that my- so immediately, okay, I'm going to help you. I'm going to, and everybody gives you their time and they really help make sure that you're completely prepared for each of these things. And um, what I love to see early on, you know, when all this news came out of what happened to the quartermaster, my immediate reaction was really feeling empathy, feeling bad for all of my friends that are in the industry that have, dedicated their lives to this organization because studying for these exams and the preparation is just grueling and they, they gave so much of their life to it. And all of a sudden this organization is held in this way. And a lot of them kind of gave up their, their certification and, and whatever it was. Um, how did it get there? I mean, it went from, you know, being one of the most prestigious organizations. Um, it seems like, you know, when the article came out, it was it seems like multiple organizations were umbrellaed under one,
2: which is wrong.
0: Right. And sense. and as you know, the common consumer, the common reader that, you know, reads news don't understand that the various Correct. different organizations, right? You think it's sommelier, you think it's one.
2: Where things kind of started going off the rails was uh, there's, was- Two things that kind of came to play simultaneously, the movie Psalm that came out, um, which brought a lot of attention to our organization. And most master sommeliers uh, were geeks, right? We're not accustomed to having uh, to being turned into rock stars and having people kind of worship, um, you know, oh, my God, you're a master sommelier because they saw this movie Psalm, right? And I think there were just a number of masters that were not equipped emotionally to handle uh, the sudden fame and attention, right? You combine that with social media, which to me is the world's greatest dysfunctional social media is, is incredibly dysfunctional. And it really plays to mental health issues, right? Where people require or need validation from others to get links or to get their likes, right? And so you lose your identity on social media because you're empowering so many other people to define and validate who you are that you start making decisions to get those likes. You start making decisions, not what's good for the organization, but what's really good for your social media presence, okay? And really, especially with 2000, I think, I guess we can say, I would say 2018 is when things really went off the rails because we had passed rules on the board for term limits. And so all of the people with institutional knowledge, long-term institutional knowledge, like myself, we termed out in 2018, which basically made the whole entire board all new blood, which I didn't really have a problem with. But when you don't have... Institutional knowledge to keep you on the straight and narrow, to root you um, into what your original identity was. It's too easy to be caught up in the social media fame that you start making decisions based on. Oh my God, we're going to get we're going to get pummeled on social media. We got to do this and we got to do that. And they're taking advice from consultants that don't know our industry, that don't know anything about what defined or created the greatness of the Court of Master Sommeliers. And since 2018, it has continued to snowball and the spiral out of control with each new group of uh, chairmen and new people that are coming in are making decisions, again, based on very shallow, superficial, what's good for social media. None of them have any idea of where the foundation came from and the underpinnings of what really made this organization great. And that's, you know, that's hospitality. Um, And then the, and, and defining hospitality, right. Um, Not, not defending our reputations on uh, not defending our reputations online, because we don't want to be uh, canceled, even though I'm here trying to, defend my reputation now because I was canceled. Right.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And, and I want to go into that because I think there was a lot that came out out of that article. Right. And there were a lot of bad actors, right. That were rightfully, you know, I guess canceled or or whatever that accountability was. And there were probably people such as yourself that were accused and I'm curious to know what your experience has been. You know, you you definitely have opinion on the social media because I think you've directly been impacted by it. But, you know, I think a lot of times we don't get the side from the person that was wrongfully accused, gone through a intensive investigation, came out and said, "Okay, you're you're right. This didn't happen. But then you don't get that kind of full-blown media saying, Matt's been, you know, free of vindicated, everybody like him again. So explain what that experience was like for you and and how you, you know, how it's impacted you, your life, your career.
2: Yeah. So it, it was much more difficult than I was expecting it to be. Um, most of it wasn't um because I, w- I had i had already left social media coincidentally before any of this happened 6 months before i didn't know what was i had no idea i just decided social media i'm a very very big yogi okay and social media and a yoga lifestyle they are incompatible they really don't work okay because social media again is about needing someone else to validate who you are as a yogi I validate myself, right? Uh, validation. I am in control of my emotions. Uh, nobody can trigger me. Only I can allow someone to, uh, you know, make me angry, right? It's not their per. It's not their fault. It's my fault. It's my fault for losing control. Social media is 180 degrees out of phase with how I live. Uh, and try. I don't say how I live, but how I try to live, right? So I had already left social media. But what I discovered was. Because of everything that was stated in the New York Times, so much of it was wrong right it just it 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 completely ignored the history it completely ignored what we had already been doing to try to correct and rectify some of this stuff right or the uh, the reporter for I don't want to use her name sorry the reporter for the new york times uh, when when she reached out to me she wasn't interested in my story um she wasn't interested in the fact that we had an ethics committee that had already disciplined people and had actually strip people of their title in the past, she wasn't interested in any of that. All she wanted was dirt, right? Either from on me or um, or on other masters. That's all she was looking to do. It was very, very disappointing. And so, you know, friends and family, they knew that this was not true. It's the strangers that don't know this stuff, right? So if I were to do, and this happens on a regular basis, and it's one of the reasons why I really don't do public events anymore I'm speaking at the last event, I think it was, a, I was doing a Spanish wine event, right? And I had this woman, um, as I'm doing the event, I'm asking if anybody have any questions. She starts, you know, asking me direct questions about the sexual harassment charge. And was I one of the people that, you know, was accused? And, you know, in front of 30 people, and she's making this claim right in front of everyone. And and in that moment, you have to remain calm, right? You have to figure out how do I address this in this very professional environment where you're being put on the spot with inaccurate uh, information that, is, uh, that was out there. And um, that's what bothers me is when I have to sit there and, and defend myself in public um, for something that, uh, you know, that I've been vindicated for, right? And the organization itself has, again, tied itself to social media identity and they won't say a word because they fear being canceled, um, and they 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 don't want their own social media images, uh, you know, uh, tarnished. Right. So, my biggest struggle has been trying to figure out how to move forward where I am not angry. Um, I'm really not angry. I'm certainly very disappointed in the organization. Um, incredibly disappointed in the leadership there because the leadership that took over they all ran on a platform of transparency. Had the, the current board delivered a transparent investigation, none of this would be happening, right? There would be a lot of pain because when you make mistakes, you have to pay for the mistakes, right? Um, but the the transparency would have allowed people to know the full story. And then if they, at least if they have the full story, if they still want to think of me as a pariah, okay, but at least you got the whole story. You still don't agree with it. That's fine, but they don't have the whole story. Um, and it's because of the lack of transparency and that, that lack of transparency, uh, investigation provided a lot of protection for the board of directors become transparent. A lot of the stuff just goes away.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I do have a couple of questions for you. You know, um, and I appreciate you. And I think it's important that you tell your story, Matt. I really do. And that you were vindicated. And that is super, super important. I do think that when we talk about an institution like, you know, the quartermaster, Salmonier, whatever institution it, it might, that it may be, that especially in hospitality, I think that's something that we've learned over covid believe it or not is how very toxic our industry is
2: uh, yes. and coming
1: uh, right and then coming out of um covid that people really demanded for shit to change yeah and and for those who are maybe on the outside of, a, of an organization like the quartermaster sommeliers um like the united states bartenders guild like all of these things right yeah they're really needed to be A new way of doing things and definitely some structure around diversity, equity and inclusion, because perhaps your story was vindicated, but not not all. Right. Right. And so there was something that was super problematic. So I, I applaud you, though, for speaking out and talking about the beauty of hospitality and the core of this organization that really that you're a part of its thread, you know. That is just, I just wanted to bring up like something that we learned and I, and I'm glad for one that what was brought to light during COVID overall of hospitality was like, there's so much patriarchy, let's say there's so much, um, all of it. There's so much sexual harassment. Um, there was disinclusion, And we can just keep going on and on, like how shitty it is, although, however, we're all still in it because we all love it. You know, we don't love that stuff. Right. So we had to put things in place to make the systems more equitable. And so that's why I want to talk to you about. I would love to know, like, what was put into place for diversity, equity and inclusion um, with the court? Have you seen any progress being made?
2: Um, uh, yes, yes and no. Let, Let me back up one question. One of the ways to show progress is being made is to focus on the progress, right? And during my listening session with the, with the, uh, the board of directors, I listed 15 or 20 things that the organization has done that shows how much progress we were making, not that we were perfect and not that there wasn't more work to do. But if you continue to focus on only the negative, it looks far worse than it really is. Okay, Um, and I think too many people are focusing on. There's still a problem there. There's a problem there. There's a problem over here, and there's a problem over there. But then they don't turn around and look at look at how many new female look at how many female chefs there were from 20 years ago. Uh, Look at how many minority chefs there. Look at how many minority business owners there are and the growth and the and the, the progress that has been made. And so this, is, as a yogi, this is one of the things that I do. It's not about what's happening here, what's going to happen in the future, but it's the big picture of being grateful for the progress we have made, but understanding, all right, let's acknowledge this project progress. Let's be grateful for this progress. Let's announce this progress to the world. And here are the steps we're going to take to continue to work um, on on board, and this is what was not done right. The board of directors amplified everything that was wrong and ignored all of the work that had been done that was correct. Because if in fact we were not doing good things to promote diversity and equity, then 2022 class would not look the way the 2022 class looks like. Okay, now. The board, I think all they really have done is amplified stuff that we already had in place. We just weren't talking about it, right? Because some of us just, I, I don't come from the world of shouting, look at what we're doing. Look at what we're doing. I come from the world of action, right? We do, all right? And you lead through action. Unfortunately, the, again, in the world of social media, action doesn't translate. You have to, you know, self-promote. And so now what the what the board has done is they've hired um, consultants and a DE&I organization to kind of, you know, promote and do things. I'm mean, like, look at it, the stuff. I'm like, well, you're not doing anything different than we already had done in the past. You're just making a big splash about it, right? As if you're doing something new and it's really not new. I mean, we spent tens of thousands of dollars uh, in marginalized communities across uh, North and South America, right? Um, trying to trying to help people in uh, communities uh, that were interested in this program, but didn't have the money to do it. Now, one of the things I think the current board is doing that we weren't doing is they're going into marginalized communities that may not have any interest in it, right? And that kind of thought never occurred to me. Why would I want to go to a, a community that has no interest in wine to, to get them excited to go through one of the hardest exams in the world? We went to marginalized communities that already had a passion for hospitality, that had a passion for wine, that wanted to seek out excellence. OK, and so that's that is the path that we chose. Now, was that the right path? Um, but at the moment that seemed like the right path. Uh, and obviously there, there were more paths. We just, you're just, you know, again, when you have so many different issues that you're trying to deal with, it's like, which one makes the most amount of sense to tackle right now? We can't do 10 because if you try to do 10, you're going to do 10 of them poorly. So let's do one or two that we're going to do very, very well. And that's kind of the, the, the way that, uh, you know, the, the, the whole board kind of operated for, for so many years. Right. And again, to our detriment, we did not do a very good job of shouting to the world the things that we were doing behind the scenes, um, just because that's, um, that's not my generation. I don't shout to the world of the good things that I'm doing. I, I find that in, incredibly, I don't know what the word is, uh, you, you just do. And, and if you do the right thing, good things follow you.
1: Yeah, and I do agree with that. You know, I, I think that we're probably about the same age. And I understand, you know, and and especially being in hospitality, because you're always putting other people right Mm -hmm. ahead of your own needs all of the time. And there is a little bit of ickiness in that, too, like not putting your oxygen mask on first. That's why we all get so tired and burnt out in the industry, you know, because we're helping everybody else around us, but not ourselves. So I, a hundred percent, um, I understand that brother, I get you so much, you know, with that. And I do think that it is good, um, in this day and age that we do have these, um, platforms where we can talk about the good work where before it was kind of, um, you know, behind the scenes, nobody knew, absolutely nobody knew. And now you have, um, these platforms that are worldwide that you can say, Hey, this is the good work. And these are the good work you know, that we're doing for these folks and, and really sharing out their voices as well. That's what we do here on Served Up, you know? Yeah. So um, it is a new day and age. Absolutely. I want to ask you, are you still a
2: member of the court? Um, um I am listed as a member um, on the organization website, but I am a member not in good standing because I will not sign their code of ethics. Uh, and if you read their code of ethics, you would understand why it is. Uh, uh, The code of any master that has signed that code of ethics has really set themselves up um, for any disgruntled candidate uh, to make a complaint on the hotline. You are automatically suspended uh, pending an investigation. And then it is imperative that the master prove themselves innocent, whereas the burden of proof is not on the person that's making the accusation. The burden of proof is on the master. Right which I have a huge problem with because anybody can be a predator and candidates are predators. We've had uh, I would love to tell you stories about predatory candidates, but I won't um, because I don't want to embarrass either the candidate or the master that was suffering through this predatory behavior. Right. It, this is not a um unknown. The current board fully understands that there are predatory candidates and we've expelled several candidates and would not allow them to participate in examinations because of their actions. And then they go ahead and put together a code of ethics that endorses predatory behavior. And I'm like, there's no way I will ever sign this document the way it is written. On top of that, the document is written in such a condescending, childish tone And one of the one of the Substack articles, I actually put a link uh, and it's right on their website. You can download it and read it. Um, it, It's 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 really a very poorly written, complicated document um, that does not serve the organization. Um, And and this is uh, something that I had mentioned during my listening session, as well as something that I actually proposed at a board meeting many, many years ago, is that. We need to get rid of this hierarchy of master candidate. We are a vocational body. We are not a uh, Ivy League school. We want people to emulate what a master sommelier is. Well, you can't have them win a pin and then suddenly change their actions. They need to start living that before they become a master. And so uh, my proposal many, many years ago was to eliminate the candidate master hierarchy, make candidates sign the same code of ethics, live to the same exact standards that masters are. Now you're one of us. All you got to do is pass the exam. Because in my mind, any candidate that was at the master's level, they had already proven their desire. They've already proven that they had the, uh, um, uh, the determination and the stamina to get to this level. All right, Now you've gotten here. If you want to be part of us, start acting like part of us. And this way, when you pass the exam, you you understand what it is to be a master before you even become a master, right?
0: Yeah, I can I can see that. I mean, it just it sounds um, you know it's just so intense and just the process. But everything that you've gone through, so many people have gone through. You know, people the victims that were treated unfairly you know the quote unquote bad actors that hopefully were held accountable you know there's so many different people that have been impacted by this right and and i think what everybody wants and what it sounds like what you want is is like real change right versus what what are we going to just put out there to to to, yes. to get rid of the story and and like just go back to normal because there is no normal right we all know that coming out of covid so what is that true change and and I agree with you I think it starts with transparency and understanding yeah. some from you like I know that your investigation was super grueling right you were told you couldn't have interviews so you couldn't tell your side of the story so you trusted the system you went through the whole investigation you come out vindicated, and then that's the end of it nobody yeah. nobody hears that part and um that's not i guess as interesting as as the other news so what does the future look like for you? you know what is your hopes for this organization and your involvement in it, and you know what would you what advice would you give to those that are currently candidates in the program um and you know, what, what are some well, words of wisdom you'd give them?
2: Um, I believe in, now, how do I say this? People should continually challenge themselves to learn more, to step outside of their comfort zone, right? Whether that's the Court of Master Sommeliers, WSET, MW program you need to find a way to challenge yourself to learn more, to become a, uh, a better person and have a clear, uh, clear definitions of what it is that you're trying to be. And this is a, another problem I have with like the code of ethics is they use a lot of words and they don't clearly define any of these words. You know, when I asked, uh, when I asked the previous chairman, can you do, you know, what is your definition for, uh, for hospitality? He didn't have a clear one. What is your definition for sexual harassment? It was nothing like mine. What was his definition of racism? nothing again like mine i'm like if 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 none of this stuff is defined then again we are talking about opacity we want transparency right and so for candidates that are involved with the organization i certainly don't want to discourage them from going through the program because the journey of trying to become a master sommelier is far greater than the pin itself the journey is what's going to define who you are not the pin All right. Um, And it's through that journey that you're going to discover a lot about yourself. You're going to discover your strengths. You're going to discover your weaknesses and all of the demons that might be holding you back. That's what you're going to discover in order to become one. Right. I don't want to discourage anyone from going through the process, but they should fully investigate. Well, what does it mean when I get to the other side? And um make the determination do you want to be on the other side or do you want to pursue something else right you need to be able to understand what is it going to be on the other side as well as and i can't say this enough your life does not change after becoming a master sommelier make sure you're doing this for the right reasons and those reasons are self improvement i want to be the best that i can be not according to my standards but to a third party standard that is over here and no matter what that organization is that that's what you, that's what you use these for is to help challenge yourself uh, again, to become better humans is what we all want to be is we want to become better humans. And no one will ever be a perfect human. No one will ever uh, mastery is not something that you obtain. Um, uh, It is something that you pursue. I pursue mastery every day. Uh, I learn how to become just a little bit better uh, somehow, some way, whether it's in this industry or just trying to become a, a better human, that's that's all we can do is is try to learn from our mistakes. Um, and that's the other thing. This is something else with with candidates and somebody that had to give feedback to so many candidates that have uh, did not pass their examination. It's like failure was like oh, there you could see their entire being just melt away because you had to tell them that they failed. And try to help them understand that, no, you didn't fail as a person. Think about where you were before you started this process. Where are you today, right? Look at that progress that you have made. Look at how much better you are uh, to do your job, to interact with our customers, all right? You didn't get it this time. No big deal. I mean, it's a big deal because it's you know, obviously a lot of money, and a lot of time, and it's a lot of emotion but it doesn't define who you are. What's defining who you are is that process to get to that, that, that end point. That's why I often refer, you know, I, I, I correlate passing the EMS to, you know, climbing Mount Everest. All right. Both, both ventures, very expensive. Both ventures, there's no guarantee of success, no matter how well prepared you are, because the weather, whatever, can come through, right? People beat themselves in the exam all the time. And then when you finally summit the mountain, and you pass, well, what happens the next day when you come down from the mountain, when you go back to work? By, oh, you, you climb Mount Everest, great. You get a pat on the back, right? And that's it. Your life goes back to normal. Same thing. I came back from the master Somalia exam. I got a pat on the back, got a free dinner. And then it was like, all right, here are your numbers for next month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's it. All right, life goes on. It doesn't change your life. The only thing that's going to change your life is you. Mm-hmm. And we can all change our lives.
1: Yeah. If we you're exactly right, um, Matt. I want to thank you on behalf of the Served Up family for spending some time with us today, for sharing your story, your passion for hospitality, your beginnings with your wonderful family in the Midwest. Yeah. And I want to wish you, on behalf of Julie, myself, you know, just some great health and a whole lot of peace. Thank so you. So, cheers to you, and thank you for being on our show.
2: Thank you, Bridget. Thank you, Julie. It was uh, it was my pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!